Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another installment of History Hack. Elena, who do we have with us today? We have got a great one for you guys today. We have Finn Dwyer with us, who is a historian and archaeologist, and he's also a published author. He's published two fabulous books, one called Life in Medieval Island and the other one, 1348, The Medieval Apocalypse. He also hosts his own podcast called The Irish History Podcast, which we will talk a little bit about today. So welcome, Finn. How are you? I'm very good. Thanks for having me on. We're very, very excited because what you've done for us is we basically said to you, go out and pick five moments in Irish history and we're going to hit all five of these. So I'm quite excited about this. Good stuff, yep. Okay, so we're going to kick off with the first one on your list. So the first one is the Norman invasion. So can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, I suppose maybe a bit of a background to Irish history over the last thousand or so years. Obviously, what's been central to Irish history is the relationship with Britain and I suppose more specifically the relationship with England. Um, and I think the Norman invasion, where it took place in the years from 1169 onwards, um, and obviously that's a, a, a long, long time ago, it is important in terms of the way it frames Irish history in the centuries forward. So the Norman invasion takes place after a internal dispute in Ireland uh, between two kings. One of them is forced into exile. He goes seeking the aid of King Henry II. Henry II isn't in a position to help him, but he allows him to um, basically procure aid from nobles. Uh, the one who steps forward and offers to help him is a man called Richard de Clare, better known as Strongbow. And he would eventually lead an army to Ireland, ostensibly to help this king, Dermot MacMurrah, uh, re recapture his uh, crown of the Kingdom of Leinster. Um, the invasion, however, very rapidly changes into something different, and it's probably Strongbow and the Normans coming from Wales and England probably had this in mind all along. It very quickly uh, becomes an invasion. Uh, Henry II himself arrives in Ireland in 1171. He's increasingly wary about what Strongbow and these uh, and what some of his vassals are doing in Ireland. And when he comes to Ireland, he basically is the first English king um, to uh, lay claim to Ireland. Now, it's a, a very early stage. Over the following 
75 years or so did the Normans will eventually take control of about 75% of Ireland. Now that control is tenuous in parts, particularly in the West, where they're basically limited to being military overlords. However, in the East, they completely dismember and destroy Gaelic society as it had existed for centuries. And the, the Gaelic aristocracy, as they were, were pushed out. They bring in large numbers of settlers, which you can still see in Ireland today from uh, the prominence, for example, I live at Kilkenny in the southeast, where one of the most, where, which was one of the most intense places of Norman conquest. And for example, the name Walsh is quite prominent in this part of the country. Walsh coming from um, the original Welsh or Welshman, uh, denoting what would have been Welsh settlers into Ireland. Um, so this Norman conquest, while is ba- runs out of steam in the late 13th century, about a hundred years after the initial invasion. Um, it certainly runs out of steam and uh, will kind of, I suppose, for want of a better term, flounder through the 14th and 15th centuries. It is a very important moment, I suppose, retrospectively, because what you have is the establishment of the connection, the political uh, connection between the kings of England and Ireland and um, this attempt to dominate Ireland begins at this moment in a very coherent fashion. Right, okay. One of Alex's favourite individuals in the whole of history, not uh, Oliver Cromwell. I suppose your listeners may be familiar with Oliver Cromwell more for his role in the English Civil War. Um, and I suppose the end of the war in England is quite important. So the English Civil War more or less has ended by the late uh, 1640s, uh, Charles II or Charles I, rather, is dead. Um, and basically then the Cromwellians, the new model army, I suppose often considered to be Republican or Democratic radicals, decide they're going to invade Ireland. There's multiple reasons why they're doing this. Ireland had been in revolt. Ireland had largely, it's quite a complex uh, situation in Ireland, but they had largely initially supported the Royalists. Um, but Ireland is essentially in revolt and Cromwell comes to Ireland. Now, he's not the first person. There have been multiple, uh, I suppose, invasions and attempt. I mentioned previously that the Norman invasion had kind of run out of steam. And certainly by the 17th century, it had, uh, there was a big question over what would happen in Ireland. There had been a plantation in Ulster in the early 17th century and plantations in other parts of the country in the 16th century. And when I say plantations, this is where uh, essentially the Gaelic inhabitants of a territory are driven out and settlers are brought in um, from England or sometimes Scotland. Um, Cromwell, however, comes to Ireland and the new model army, uh, the army that come here, are uh, bringing warfare to a, what could be argued a level of intensity that hadn't been seen in a long time or certainly has horrific implications in Ireland. Uh, the Cromwellian invasion completely reorganizes Irish society. Uh, they they arrive, it's about, I suppose you could say about two years of maybe uh, traditional types of warfare where they start to conquer the country. And then this is followed by a more, I suppose, what would be associated with um, guerrilla warfare as the uh, Irish and they're not just it's complex they're not just Gaelic Irish or you also have the descendants of some of the Normans who had invaded Ireland in the 12th century who have 
um, who are also opposed to the arrival of Cromwell. But that's besides the point. But this um, guerrilla campaign is, a, a, the reaction to this is a brutal counterinsurgency. And tactics are a, by Cromwell where huge numbers of people are killed, not just through military violence, but through the things that often follow this, like famine and disease. Now, these are, I suppose you could say, adopted as conscious strategies of war where to try and defeat the guerrillas in Ireland, what they're doing is denying them access to food and resources. So there's huge amounts of food being destroyed, which naturally precipitates famine and famine is always followed by disease. Cromwell occupies a, a particularly I suppose, odious uh, position in Irish history and maybe one of the best ways to explain this is the sheer population drop that happens in the 17th century. And this is a, a hotly debated topic, exactly how much the Irish population dropped. But it's generally considered, say, if you take from about 1641 when a rebellion starts in Ireland through to the end of the Cromwellian invasion, the population drop in Ireland is somewhere between 20 to 30% in a really rapid uh, period of time. There's wow. also this phrase um, that's adopted that summarises some of the Cromwellian policy, which is to hell or to Connacht. Connacht is the most westerly province of Ireland, which is the poorest of land, um, and it's a, generally the poorest area in the country. And the to hell or to Connacht was basically a directive or for want of a better word, uh, that was dispatching the wealthier, I suppose, sections of Irish society at the time t to hell, i.e. they'd be killed or they could go to Connacht. Now, a, a large part of this that's behind this is, uh, first of all, is obviously racism. Irish people or the people of Ireland had long been seen as um, barbarous. Uh, this stretches back centuries, even in the 17th century. But also religion is obviously playing a huge role in this. Uh, the majority of the Irish population had remained Catholic after the Reformation. And Cromwell uh, was essentially a sectarian. Um, and uh, that motivated a large part of this as well. Religion obviously plays a huge role in Irish history as we move forward. And maybe at the next events we'll talk a, a bit about that. But already by the 17th century... Um, Religion is playing a really big part in Ireland. Ireland did remain largely Catholic and after the Reformation, obviously when England uh, largely becomes a Protestant country. And this naturally leads to um, tension. But Ireland isn't, ex isn't exclusively, it should be said Ireland isn't, and Irish people aren't exclusively Catholics either. There's considerable numbers of Irish Protestants as well. Um, but the reason I would have picked Cromwell is, again, we're talking about events that took place now over 350 years ago, but these have a huge influence moving forward in Irish history. Particularly Cromwell is remembered, even to this day to a certain extent, as someone who would have been responsible, I suppose, for reshaping Irish society in a really, like, had a huge impact in terms of the last vestiges of medieval Irish society are absolutely destroyed. And, you know, you might think, oh, well, that's progress. It wasn't at all because the nature of how did they essentially just wipe away um, the previous society. And, like, I suppose if you want to understand that a good analogy is, like, the famous Roman, or the, it was a Tacitus, who, or Suetonius maybe who said it's like they, they create a desert about when they were talking about the Roman warfare they create a desert and they call it peace 
And to an extent, that's what the Cromwellians had done in Ireland. They absolutely ravaged the country. Um, Ireland is in a horrific position afterwards. And then huge numbers of settlers are brought in. And that that is part of the reason for the invasion. The new model army, having fought in the English Civil War, have to be paid. And large numbers of these people are going to be paid with Irish land. I was going to ask what are the long-term effects, but I'm assuming we are going to cover this in our next three points. Yeah, like, again, I, I would re-emphasise the idea that these events took place way back. I suppose the Cromwellian invasion is on the cusp of the modern period of Irish history. And it is, like, quite a considerable... And it, I, I think I chose these two because I think they frame maybe the next events that we're going to talk about. They frame them very well, and those events certainly have a huge impact on Ireland, even in the 21st century. So in reality, Cromwell should not have topped the list of um, the most amazing Brits in history, really. No, like that is something that like people in Ireland find, like the 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 fact that, for example, there's a statue to Oliver Cromwell outside Westminster is something that people in Ireland find mind-boggling. Yeah, you definitely don't need to sell me on him being a massive dick. Um, but let's talk about your next one, which is the 1798 Rebellion. Yeah, so the 1798 Rebellion in many ways is one of the more inspiring chapters and then one of them ends in a horrific uh, bloodbath, I suppose. Um, so in, in the later decades of the 18th century, so that we're talking about the 1770s, 1780s and 1790s, Irish society, I suppose you could say, is radicalising. Irish people are, and I, when I say Irish people, I'm talking about Irish Catholics, Irish Protestants, um, and what are called dissenters, people from various different, um, uh, that would be neither Catholic or mainstream Protestants, um, are becoming radicalised. And particularly after the French Revolution of 1789, um, they're inspired by the idea of establishing an independent Irish Republic free from British rule. Um, it should be said by this point, Ireland has been a colony in one form or another of England and Britain for centuries. And the idea is that there would be, um, you have an increasing support for an Irish Republic. And you get the emergence of a group called the Society of United Irishmen. Uh, it's initially founded in Belfast. Uh, and it spreads across the country. It's a huge organization and it's advocating for this republic. Uh, this, they launch a rebellion in the summer of 1798 with, it's the largest rebellion, I suppose it's the largest popular rebellion, and certainly the largest republican rebellion in Irish history. And um, you have tens of thousands of people that participate in it. Uh, Unsurprisingly, when it breaks out, you do have sectarian aspects to some of the uprisings in certain parts of the country. There are, because Irish society at this point is quite, there had been rising sectarian tension at the same time as you had this rising radicalism. But um, the rebellion initially enjoys, enjoys some successes. For example, in Wexford, they defeat a British army. Um, there is hope also that a French army will arrive to help them as well. This is not long. The, the leaders of the Irish Republican move, excuse me, the Irish Republican movement had gone to France to try and get aid. French do eventually arrive, but it's a bit too late. Long story short, after initial successes, the rebellion is defeated for a variety of reasons. But what follows it is a wave of what you could call counter-revolutionary state terror, where militias roam the country. 
uh, trying to find people who had been involved in the rebellion, who are vaguely sympathetic to the rebellion, like who look vaguely in any way like they might be Republican in outlook, or in many cases just Catholic priests. And these people are flogged, tortured, imprisoned. There's large-scale um, executions. So again, debated how many people were killed in this wave of counter-revolutionary state terror that follows the 1798 rebellion. Now, while that in itself is a defeat for, I suppose, Republican ideals in Ireland, something that will continue through the 19th century, one of the most important outcomes of this is something called the Act of Union, which has passed through Ireland, had up until this point, had its own parliament that sat in Dublin. And that parliament could make decisions over a certain amount of um, aspects of life in Ireland. That parliament is abolished in 1800 through, it actually has to vote itself out of existence. And that vote to essentially, to, 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 when parliament, uh, when the House of Parliament and then the Upper House vote themselves out of existence is considered to be one of the most um, corrupt votes in Irish history. The British administration in Dublin Castle had put huge, uh, amounts of money into bribing uh, the, uh, the the members of Parliament and the House of Lords in Dublin to vote themselves out of existence. And then after that, uh, in something called the Act of Union, Ireland is merged into the United Kingdom, which then consisted of um, England, Scotland and Wales. Ireland is merged into that. And this move, the Act of Union, which brings Ireland into the United Kingdom, is probably one of the most disastrous events in Irish history. Um, the represent- are, the Irish MPs who go to the Westminster are outnumbered. There's about 100 Irish MPs and 600 MPs from the rest of Britain. Um, and this will have terrible uh, consequences through the 19th century. Um, next, I think we're going to talk about the Great Famine and certainly the lead-up and the events during the Great Famine are... In the, the, the Act of Union haunts those uh, events because Ireland is now being ruled almost completely from Britain with very little say from Ireland. I'm really curious, because you said that they, the British went around hunting for uh, Irish people who rebelled. I mean, and they had a certain look about I mean, What kind of certain look did you have? Like, sorry, you've got a beard, therefore you must be a revolutionary. Let's no, watch your next cue that was a, a glib comment on my part. It, it, were, it wasn't a, a kind of a racial profiling. No, 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 um, no. It's just, it's, I understand. I, I, it's... I, I, I would say that, like, when I say British, it's important to know that Irish society, like any, like any situation in this, there's obviously Irish people, and Irish society is divided at this time, and sectarian lines are used to divide the Irish population. So some of those travelling around, like the militias, will be from the aristocracy whose families in Ireland might have been in mm-hmm. Ireland for three, four generations by this point, but they're increasingly seeing themselves, and it's an interesting thing. These people are actually increasingly, rather than decreasingly, seeing themselves as British. Um, but when I would refer to the, the British are driving this, that's where the political drive for this act is coming from. It's coming from um, the administration in Dublin Castle and then ultimately in London. Um, That's pretty interesting. um, But it is important to acknowledge that there is this complexity in Irish society that Irish history cannot be boiled down into um, simply 
Irish people on one side, English people on the other. There's lots of people who are on both sides or who are trying to navigate in between the two. Like you can see it today in the conflict in the north of Ireland where now we know that in the late like late 80s, early 90s, that British security forces were running paramilitaries themselves in the north and were responsible for quite considerable numbers of deaths. So like that's not a new policy. You have this grey area um where like people are trying to navigate where their allegiances lie. And the same in 1798. Um, but I think it's important to acknowledge where the drive for this is coming from or where the support, I suppose, is coming from. And, <clears throat> excuse me, you have... Um, like, when I say that they're identifying with this, this, this the c- campaign of what you might call... what you might call state terror, it's, it's more to try and... What, what, what am I, I'm getting at there is it's very broad brush where there's not like evidence is, they're not looking for like justice is, is, is not read. They're not looking for evidence or the, the evidence they're looking for is, is pretty, um, the burden of proof, shall we say, wasn't very high and large numbers of people are killed, like in some in particularly brutal, uh, fashion and like torture is widely applied as well. Identity here is very interesting. I mean, that runs that runs through the whole world, really. It's like, how do you identify yourself? You're born one place, you're raised another place, and it's very conflicting. And I find that very interesting in the situation. Yeah, like that had been an issue in Ireland. You can trace it right back into the 14th century and even before, where the Normans had referred to themselves as the Middle Nation. Um, and the middle nation were, they recognized that there was the Gaelic Irish society, which was quite different, radically different, in fact, uh, than the society, say, for example, that existed in England or Wales at the time. And then there was this society back in England and Wales, and then this middle nation of Norman settlers, they knew themselves to be somewhat different. And their allegiances, so for example, they would have spoken Irish, or been able to speak Irish, and sometimes dressed in their, along, uh, in following Irish customs. In the, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> uh, dressed in uh, following Irish customs in the 14th century. So this issue of like navigating those things has also been, uh, has, has always been part of the, the history of Ireland. Okay, so now we're going to move on to the Great Hunger. So the Great Hunger or the Great Famine begins in 1845 and is very unusual in that it lasts, for a famine, in that it lasts six, seven, arguably even eight years in parts of the West. And the this event, I would say, is the most important event in modern Irish history. Um, but in those years, say between 1845 and 1851, when a census is carried out, the population of Ireland has dropped by about two million. It had stood at about eight and a half somewhere near eight and a half or nine million. The exact numbers are unsure because the 1840, 1841 census, uh, there was problems with the way that had been carried out. But anyway, that census um, revealed that, uh, sorry, the population in 1851 had dropped by about two million, about a million had died and about a million had emigrated. Um, the Great Famine begins in 1845 because of the arrival of potato blight in Ireland. And potato blight obviously destroys the potato crop. Huge numbers of Irish people 
probably around 3 million people are dependent on the potato for survival. However, it would be a mistake to say that the failure of the potato crop is solely responsible for the deaths of all those people that I've outlined and the emigration. Ireland in the 19th century, early 19th century, after the Act of Union, is increasingly turned into what you might call the breadbasket of the United Kingdom. And about, it's estimated about 2 million people were being fed out of Irish farms in Britain, in, in the growing cities in Britain, um, and a small number outside of Britain as well. But a couple of factors combine that lead uh, the, what was a huge problem is the failure of the potato crop. There are a couple of factors combined to make that into an absolute catastrophe. So one is economics. The British Empire at the time and the economic system behind the British Empire at the time was laissez-faire economics. Uh, basically, the government um, would not intervene in the economy. So they will not, and this is something that like comes up time and again, the British government refused to close Irish ports or stop exports of food from Ireland. And in fact, eventually, the British army would be sent into particularly the port, into the countryside across the south of Ireland, the really rich farming countryside, to, a, to, a, to accompany food exports because farmers were being attacked because the poor were robbing food to survive. But the army was sent in to ensure that food was exported. So that's one reason the um, economic system behind the British Empire. And I should say, this not only happens in Ireland, it's, it's really important to acknowledge this happens in India as well, um, later in the 19th century, where you have these catastrophic famines, which happen through, obviously the process is not exactly the same as Ireland, but there's echoes right through. So one, you have that economic system that I talked about. Secondly, racism is hugely important. There's an idea in England, in the centre of power, among some of the most um, influential people in Britain, that Irish people are lazy, that they have brought this on themselves, and essentially you shouldn't help them because if you help them, you'll just bring them down onto the... Um, onto the, 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 the largesse of the British state and they'll never help themselves. And racism is really, really important if you want to understand the famine. And it's, it's no, like, it's central to it. There's also the general attitude among the British ruling class towards the poor. The way they've treated the poor in England up until this point is disgraceful. Um, and they see the Irish poor as even worse. Um, at this point, you can see cartoons that would have the, what they would call the Anglo-Saxon man on one side, an Irish person on, um, in, in the middle, and then an African person on the far side of the drawing. You've got a, a drawing of three different people, and you have, as I say, the Anglo-Saxon, or what they would see as the British person, the Irish person, and the African person. And they saw the English person or the British person as being racially the, the 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 most superior than the Irish person in the middle and then um African people who were being subjected to the horrors or of slavery in 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 America at the time as being at, at the far side of the strong but that kind of see the, the point I'm bringing this up is that you can kind of see the way Irish people were being viewed in a racial hierarchy. And it's often talked about how the Irish weren't really considered to be white at this time or wouldn't have certainly been given the privileges of um, what it meant to be white. Now, this would come later in the 19th century. 
But at this point, Irish people were definitely seen as being a bit, uh, and, and that plays a huge, huge role um, in the story of the great hunger of, of the famine. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. So tell me, where do these Irish jokes come from? Because in my lifetime, they've existed, but I know they go further, much further back. Yeah, so I think racism is a very important part of understanding the famine. I mentioned the economic implications or the the implications of the economic system that the British Empire was operating under at the time. But racism and the view that Irish people were inferior and had more or less brought this on themselves, that they weren't able to, I suppose, be industrious, that they weren't an industrious people and a kind of a laziness had led to the famine was prevalent in England. But race or sorry, the you get this you often get jokes, even up until this day, that will refer to like make jokes about Irish people and potatoes or make jokes about Irish people and the famine. Like I've had people in Britain even sometimes thinking that they're making a funny joke to me and they think, but they don't understand that it comes from the famine. Like that's where potato jokes come from. And I think it is linked into this idea that goes back to the um, famine. But also then, uh, where I suppose some of the jokes you're getting at also come from the emigration that follows the famine. An emigration, an Irish emigration and the Irish diaspora across the world is really closely linked to the Great Hunger. So over the course of the Great Hunger, about a million people leave in the the five, six years that it lasts, but then you've this phenomenal wave of emigration that continues right through the 19th century and into the 20th century, where Irish people are leaving Ireland in the millions every decade. Well, not every decade, but a lot of, there's several decades where you have, say, for example, a good statistic is that by 1900, two out of every five Irish-born people are living outside the island by that point. Other statistics that are really hard to get your head around, but things like in New York in the 1860s, a quarter of the population were Irish-born. That's not including the children of Irish born people. So like the Irish population in New York in the 1860s was huge and there's cities all across, uh, not only in the US, but also in Britain, Liverpool has a huge Irish population because Liverpool was the big transit port for Irish emigrants hoping to get to the Americas because that's where they wanted to go. But a lot of times they'd be too poor. They might be able to afford to get to Liverpool and then they'd be stuck there. So the population of Liverpool is over Irish-born population of Liverpool is over 20% in the immediate aftermath of the famine. And you can still see that today, that Liverpool has this very strong connection with Ireland. Um, but 
that story of emigration is really important. And in terms of like the significance of the famine, I think it's also really important. There had been actually a worse famine in, in, in Irish history a century earlier in the 1740s, an event called the Year of Slaughter, where it's estimated that about a third of the population might have uh, died, or certainly uh, that's a very high estimate. But larger numbers of the um, of the population had died in that famine in the 1740s. But I think it's the emigration that makes the Great Famine of the 1840s, but it's one of the factors that makes it an international event. So if you want to talk about events, like even into the 20th century, like you can't, the Irish famine of the 1840s is related to things like John F. Kennedy becoming US president or the huge Irish communities you get all across the world. Emigration had been growing through the early years of the 19th century, but it becomes an absolute tidal wave, particularly in the 1850s, but there's also huge numbers emigrating in the uh, 18 all the way, sorry, all the way through the 1870s, the 1880s, well, less so in the 1880s, but the 1890s, and then into the 20th century as well. And I think that is one of the things that makes the famine the standard event. In Ireland, though, it has a huge impact. So there is this sense, borne out in reality, that the British government had not acted. Now, you, there is, I suppose, more the conspiratorial end of it that would say the British government created the famine. That's a nonsense argument. The big issue that they did not do, though, is they did not act to alleviate the famine. And this was at a time when Britain was the most powerful empire in the world. And Ireland, literally, whatever it is, two, three hundred miles from London, was allowed to start. And we're talking about starvation in the most horrific terms. And there was... The, you can read the, the parliamentary papers, for example, on the Great Famine, and you can see the amount of detail that was flowing back into Whitehall about what was happening all across Ireland. And Ireland was a place that a lot of these politicians would have known intimately well. We're not talking about somewhere they'd never been. Like there's people sitting in the Parliament in, in Westminster who come from Ireland. They're raising these issues. And that is the thing that I think really, in my mind, for a certain section of the Irish population, is a watershed moment. The idea that the Irish population could become like, say, for example, the Scots or the Welsh, where they, by and large, become part of the United Kingdom and that Ireland will become a... a I don't, I don't think you could really say that the other countries are equal partners with England in the United Kingdom, but on a par with Scotland or Wales. That ends, I think, at the famine, and any hope of it ends at the famine, because Irish people realise that they're not viewed as the same. And it's often questioned, I suppose, in Ireland, if the famine had happened in the home counties, what would the reaction have been? Would they have insisted that the orthodoxy of laissez-faire economics be followed uh, and there would be very limited intervention? Now, what I've described as well is obviously a very broad summary. I've actually done a very long podcast series on the ins and outs of the famine and how it develops from 1845 and like there is initial attempts by the British government of Sir Robert Peel to intervene and it's really when the Liberals take power um, in the summer of 1846 uh, that you get a real shift and where the famine becomes absolutely catastrophic uh, partially because the blight is really bad but also because the economic policy pursued by the Liberals is utterly disastrous. And then, as I've said, combined with this idea that Irish people have kind of brought this on themselves um, leads to this horrific situation. And towards the end of the famine, in many ways, what you get, I think, is some of the worst aspect of it, where people start to see the famine 
or start to identify positives to it. So it had long been recognised that Ireland was there was structural problems with the Irish economy, and they start to see the famine as this chance to drive through huge economic changes um, because they won't face resistance. Because and that aspect of it is is this you know, very calculated decisions and in some cases decisions that are making the situation worse in Ireland. And I think so, but my point is is that when you factor in all these things, this becomes a huge kind of moment in Irish history where a section, not all, but a section of the Irish population are starting to move to this idea that Ireland needs independence. And that's where, like, I suppose the safety lies, is to get out of the British Empire, to get out of... uh United Kingdom, and this will become a standard bearer, a rallying cry through the later years of the 19th century as people uh, move forward. And we absolutely don't. We have to talk about the War of Independence. I always think that it's, you could argue that the War of Independence is in many ways kind of an outworking of tensions that have built up after the famine. You'd had in 1858 an organisation called the Fenians had been founded um, and they were committed to achieving an Irish Republic, and they argued that Britain would never allow Ireland to become independent and it would have to be through armed struggle. That organisation enjoys some successes, some failures. I suppose their greatest success was arising in 1916 during World War I, where they felt that, I suppose, there was a maxim in Ireland that uh, England's difficulty is Ireland's opportunity. So while England was essentially, as they would have seen as fighting, um, in the First World War, that it was up to Irish Republicans to take a blow for, or to make a blow for Irish freedom. Obviously, that's a very simplistic thing. There's thousands, tens of thousands of Irish people also fighting for the British Army at this point. And again, we're coming back to that idea that it's not just a simplistic black and white, uh, uh Irish people on one side, British people on the other. There's lots of people in between. Um, but in 1919, um, a war of independence, though, does begin. And this the, this war of independence follows on from events. One of the most significant things is that the British Army had threatened to introduce conscription, which hadn't been, uh, operate, been operating in Ireland. They threatened to introduce conscription into Ireland in um, 1918, 1917, 1918. And this was created outrage in Ireland. No one wanted to go to the Western Front at this point where you've got... Things like the Battle of the Somme have already happened. People are well aware what, what's ahead of them there. And uh, Ireland then, in late 1918, Sinn Féin, the political party, sweeped the boards at the general election that year. And Ireland begins to rapidly move uh, towards a war of independence, which begins in January 1919. It goes on for about a year and a half. Arguably, the really intense phase is less than a year a, really in 1920 to 1921. Um, that war is actually less, far less intense than something like the 1798 rebellion we've spoken about. There's, uh, a series of engagements. The IRA, the IRA, which is the Irish Republican Army, fight the war on a guerrilla, fight a guerrilla war. They don't have the ability to take on the British Army and open engagements. And there's a couple of times where they do try large scale attacks. Famously on the customs house in Dublin, um, but they shy away from those. They don't tend to do well. Where they do well is in ambushes, in like picking off, I guess, uh, isolated barracks, and they often burn them down. 
the British Army tried various different tactics. One of them is to withdraw into the into more. They withdraw into centres of power, and in reaction to that, the IRA just burned down all the places they evacuated. And in many ways, you've got this situation where the British Army is ceding territory. And um, there's a couple of events during the war that really turned the Irish population, I guess, increasingly against the British Army. There's uh, they overreact or they retaliate um, in events. Like for example, they burn Cork City after an attack on soldiers. They 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 um, burn several other towns in Ireland. And when I say burn, they're burning like blocks and blocks of, of say for example, Cork. The centre of Cork is burned. Um, I suppose one of the most notorious aspects of it is the Black and Tans, essentially a quasi-paramilitary force sent to Ireland, and they would have, in terms of historical memory, would last in Ireland in terms of the memory of the war. These people, uh, or this unit are remembered for carrying out some of the worst atrocities. They would have raided houses, been involved, as I mentioned there, like the burning of Cork. Um, the war drags on until the summer of 1921. And by that point, the IRA are actually starting to run out of weapons. They have really struggled to import weapons uh, as they had hoped to do. And you have a situation, though, where the British also are, are in a difficult position because they are also, I suppose, increasingly tired of the conflict and can't see a way of winning it. They can hold on to some of the centres of power, but there's huge swathes of the country that are totally, the, the, the only way the British Army can go into them is in big convoys. And you end up then, towards the declining months of that year, you have uh, negotiations in London. These negotiations lead to a treaty. In this treaty, the 26 counties of the southern part of our, the 26 southern and western counties in Ireland gain partial independence. It's not full independence. That won't come for a couple of decades later. And then six counties in the northeast of Ireland remain um, as part of the United Kingdom. One of the reasons they remain as part of the United Kingdom is because they're, I suppose, a base. It's not just about religion. People often think it's because that's where Protestantism is based. Sorry, that because that's where uh, there's a high concentration of Protestants in Belfast and the surrounding areas. It's more, though, to do with politics as well, because those there's a high concentration of loyalism in that part of the country. Now, there is an overlap between Protestantism and loyalism, but it is important to recognise that it's not just solely religion, that there is this political dynamic to it. And loyalism in an Irish context is people who are loyal to the British uh or to the United Kingdom, or they want Ireland to remain part of the United Kingdom, hence being called loyalists. But uh, that treaty is brought before um, the Parliament, the Irish Parliament, the Doyle, um, in uh, <coughs> excuse me, in late 1921, early 1922, and it's ratified. However, this leads eventually to the Irish Civil War because the IRA had been largely, not completely, but largely opposed to the treaty. They weren't happy with these terms. Um, there was also lots of caveats in the treaty that they weren't happy with. For example, um, Ireland, Ireland wasn't completely independent and there was various um, um, aspects of this treaty which really kind of made these people wonder whether they had actually achieved independence. In retrospect, the 26 counties would go on to become a fully independent republic in, eventually in 1949. But there was an argument at the time that the six counties 
in the northeast that today are Northern Ireland that had remained in the United Kingdom that they would eventually kind of eventually have to become part of uh, of the independent republic and obviously that didn't happen. Listen, before we finish, tell our listeners how can they get hold of your podcast, where can they listen to it and obviously we know it's about Ireland but can you also give us a little bit of, of, a, of a background? Yeah, for sure. So you can find the Irish History Podcast wherever you listen to podcasts, iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify. Uh, you can also find it at irishhistorypodcast.ie and over, I've been making the podcast since 2010, so I've covered quite a lot of chapters in Irish history. So there's a series on the Norman invasion. There's also another series on Irish history before that. That's kind of Vikings, High Kings, uh, early medieval Ireland. But then I've also moved over the last five years, I've, I suppose, relocated closer to the present. So from 2016 to 2019, I made a series on the story of the Great Famine. So that worked its way through that. I've also covered things like the story of Irish people who fought in the Spanish Civil War on both sides. Um, And what I try to do in each episode is focus on a person who I feel is representative of wider arguments I'm trying to get across because I feel it's much easier to relate to a history if it's about a person. I think we all have been in that experience of being in school and you hear a a series of dates and you can't remember them and people always say, oh, I don't like history because I can't remember dates. Well, this history is not so much about dates. It's about people. It's about people just like you being in incredible uh, times and places. So hopefully it gives you that sense of um, what what history and Irish history was like, but also covering the bigger uh, events also going on, the ideas about why things are happening, trying to maybe explain some of the background to it as well. That's amazing. Thank you so much for joining us and talking to us. Thanks a million for having me on. Join us tomorrow morning when Alina will be hosting Pole Position. She's going to be talking to Sam Napton about displacement after the Second World War, which is a huge, huge issue in Poland, so don't miss that. And then in the afternoon, we will be talking single white females. We will be talking to Jane Lowe's about single female emigrants to Australia and a program that existed to encourage them to go during the 19th century. These incredibly brave women that dropped everything and who basically went to rebalance the population because it was full of men. So don't miss that one. Don't forget, you can become a patron of History Hack for as little as a dollar a month. Just go to www.historyhack.podbean.com. It will help us keep going in the aftermath of the coronavirus, and we would really appreciate it, as we would love to do so. We are now on YouTube. We are posting all of our new episodes on there, and we have our own channel, and we are gradually posting all of the back episodes, because we have been made aware of the fact that you can only find the last hundred on some platforms. So you can go and listen to your heart's content and laugh at the cartoons and have a great time so do go over there and subscribe when you make decisions for your company you look for the no-brainers and if you have a lot of mailing to do stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer it streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient which makes you less busy mail checks invoices legal documents and everything you need to keep your business running with stamps.com Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. 
Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.